Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Lance Dixon, who is Professor of Particle Physics and Astrophysics at Stanford University and SLAC. He's interested in novel descriptions of our relativistic particle scattering and how those insights can be applied to a variety of problems. Welcome, Lance. Thank you for having me on, Gil. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So uh, as I uh, briefly described, Lance, I'm sort of mathematically incompetent. uh and so um uh but i find this topics extremely interesting i go to sleep thinking about falling into a black hole most nights and uh it has been very useful in in uh, getting to sleep um but um so so we had some conversations as the audience knows um about ligo and virgo that is detecting um gravitational waves uh advanced like on Virgo now we have ESA going out to doing LISA taking it to the next level uh and then we have LHC um doing uh many particle physics experiments now most people think of these things are distinctly different things black holes are big things not necessarily big in diameter but uh big in mass and momentum and so on and uh, and the little things that we uh, we sort of squash together at LHC are really small things so so i want to start with the black holes you have a quote here from chandrashekhar he says the black holes of nature are the most perfect macroscopic objects uh, there are in the universe so so what do you mean what does what did he mean by the most perfect macroscopic object i think he meant that they were very mathematically precise there is a way of describing them um if the black hole is not spinning we say that they solve a certain equation which einstein wrote down his field equations of general relativity and the solution to them to those equations there was one found by 
Schwarzschild early in the 20th century, and it gives a very precise and very simple description of what space-time looks like everywhere near a black hole. And uh, as far as we know, black holes obey the, these relations perfectly. And uh, in the real world, they can sometimes have accretion disks of gas and dust around them, but, but sometimes they appear to be very naked or, or shorn of that dust, and uh, then they should obey these equations. And we've seen examples of that with the LIGO detectors, at least seeing the gravitational waves when two black holes coalesce. And so far, it seems to be described by Einstein's equations as well. Yeah, so uh, in some sense, it's sort of counterintuitive um, for non-physicists, but in some sense, it's a simple object. It, it, you can describe a black hole with potentially three parameters, right? Mass, spin, and potentially electric charge, more, but Correct. most of them don't have an electric charge. So it's almost like two variables. We don't have too many things that could be defined by two variables. In the, yeah, in the world. It's, a, it's an extremely simple playground. And so lots of theorists have, have studied uh, black holes under those circumstances. And sometimes they've enlarged the theory to have, for example, extra electromagnetic charges. And then they can get even richer uh, uh, solutions that may not have to do with reality. But it's a great mathematical playground because it is so simple. So mass and spin are sort of the the, the big things, right, for, for a black hole. But some of them are not even spinning, I gather. Yeah, I mean, uh, we don't know that much about how much they're spinning. There are two ways we see black holes. One is through electromagnetic signals. There were a handful of these systems where there might have been an ordinary companion that was accreting matter down onto the black hole. And you could see x-rays from that. I don't actually know how much evidence there was for the spin of those. And now we see more black holes through the mergers that have been seen through gravitational waves through LIGO-Virgo uh, observations. And there, the spin can be constrained. It's not easy to measure it precisely, but there is evidence that some of them are spinning and the others may be spinning too slowly to tell. It's not completely clear yet. We're gonna learn a lot more about this over the next decade. The spin is also very important to learn how these systems of two black holes formed. So did they form because they were originally massive stars in the same system? Or were they isolated and they, be, they uh, captured later through uh, what we call three-body interactions in dense environments? Those two scenarios have different conclusions about which way the spins are pointing relative to the way the black holes were orbiting. And some of that can be diagnosed with future data. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing accomplishment. I was looking at the Even Horizon Telescope picture. It's something that was theorized 100 years ago. We could ultimately take a picture of. <laughs> so yeah. It's an incredible uh, scientific and engineering accomplishment. Uh, but but what we're looking at there is not necessarily the black hole, but stuff around the black hole, right? That's correct. That was taken electromagnetically, so you need gas and dust to be uh, radiating uh, 
Actually, in this case, it's pro it was taken by a collection of radio telescopes across the Earth. So they made a synthetic or artificial aperture of a radio telescope the size of the Earth in order to uh, make the image. But they needed radio waves. I'm not entirely sure, but I think they're usually from uh, synchrotron radiation of electrons that are spiraling, spiraling around in some magnetic fields that may be in the in the disk. So the, the picture that we got um, in the in the radio spectrum does it uh, prove everything that we thought of the black holes, or are there anything that came out of that that sort of put some question marks? As far as I know, there are no question marks raised by that image, but I haven't read all of the relevant papers, so. So it sorts of, um, um, it, it sort of um, proves the standard model in some, some, you know, some, some way, right? So whatever was expected, we saw. Uh, and then we have the LIGO and the Virgo experiments going on uh, to detect the, the gravitational waves of neutron stars or black holes merging. So this is um, the, the beauty of, I was talking to somebody else the other day that the beauty of the LIGO and Virgo is that it's on Earth. Uh, James Webb is going to L2. <laughs> and that's a, that's a long, long, uh, uh, long uh, distance away from us. Uh, if something happens, we can go out there. Uh, but here in LIGO and Virgo, we can actually look at things, right, with, uh, with gravitational waves. That's so, right. So, so what, what, what do we have so far from LIGO and Virgo? I know there are advanced versions of both of these things operating now. So let me just mention that that radio image was actually of a supermassive black hole. So that's at the center of a large galaxy, and it has a mass of millions or maybe probably billions of, of solar masses. That's the Androm Andromeda um, or maybe. Galaxy. Maybe or M87. I, I think it might be M87. It's uh, they they also have plans to image the black hole at the center of our galaxy, which is a very large one too. Um, but in contrast, the black holes that were seen uh, have been seen by LIGO and Virgo are um, much smaller. They're of order 10 to 100 solar masses, roughly most of the events. And uh, there's a reason for that, and it has to do with the characteristic frequency with which things can orbit each other before they sort of touch and coalesce. If you have very big black holes, like these supermassive ones, they orbit very slowly. And there will be gravitational radiation from them too, but it will be at a very low frequency. And earthbound, De gravitational wave detectors like LIGO and Virgo, they do their best to isolate themselves from seismic noise. But seismic noise is very strong at low frequencies. And so they can't go below about 10 hertz. And so these black holes have been radiating, the ones they see have been radiating for a long time, gravitational waves, but they've been at too low a frequency to be observed on Earth. So you just have to wait until they're close to the very end when they radiate so much that they spiral in and coalesce. And just in the last few cycles, can you see them with LIGO? 
The neutron stars are even lighter. They're yeah. typically about one solar mass. And so things happen faster. And that means that they're, they're um, spinning around fast enough to, for the gravitational wave to be visible for a few minutes, whereas it's less than a second for the black holes that LIGO's seen. When we have a space-based gravitational wave detector like LISA, which may also go out around the L2 point that you mentioned for Webb, I think that's the plan, then that detector will be able to see extremely slow uh, uh, period uh, gravitational waves, and it will see these supermassive black hole coalescences too. Yeah, so the supermassive black holes we have at the center of galaxies, like the Milky Way, M81, M87, they're already supermassive. Um, so presumably they merged with a lot of stuff in the past. So, so do we have supermassive black holes? Do we expect supermassive black holes to merge in the, in the current regime? If there's a merger of two uh, galaxies, if the there may be a point at which the supermassive mass, uh, black holes merge. Right. Probably so, more often you will see supermassive black holes eating stellar-sized objects, whether they're stars or black holes. Those will also uh, radiate gravitational waves. It'll be a much more asymmetric system with a million mass thing eating a few mass, solar mass thing. Uh, so it'll be a different kind of radiation, but the signal should still be visible. So if two galaxies are merging, though, it, it should show up in the, in the visible spectrum somewhere, right? Yeah, there's a, uh, I mean, I think there will be, you know, shocks from, because the galaxies have gas in them and the gases are approaching, but, you know, I think this, there are many galaxy mergers around there, and that is the kind of thing that takes millions of years. Whereas the final coalescence, when the two black holes get, supermassive black holes get close to each other and radiate, and and then coalesce, you know, that final stage would be much shorter than the millions or billions of years for the full galaxy merger. So like is LIGO and Virgo sort of fine-tuned to find um, neutron stars and lower mass black holes merging? Yeah, that's correct. They they have a certain window of frequency that they can see gravitational waves in. And the bottom of it the lowest frequency is about 10 hertz or 10 cycles per second. And it's kind of in the audio band. It goes up through hundreds of hertz to about, I think about a thousand hertz. They have other uh, noise limitations. And uh, so they don't see much um, past there. But that still gives them two, two decades in frequency. And, and that happens to be quite well tuned to these uh, stellar mass uh, coalescences. Yes, in the audio band, I remember hearing something that you can actually hear them merging. Yeah, <laughs> you, should splice, you should splice in an audio version of a LIGO chirp. <laughs> it's quite amusing to hear. It's an amazing thing. So, so I want to go to LHC now. Um, so LHC is sort of on the other end of the spectrum. We are 
essentially smashing protons together and trying to figure out what comes out of it. Is, is that the way to think about it? Yeah, uh, particle physicists love smashing things together. And the general idea is that we can make new things when we smash particles together. And at the Large Hadron Collider, a particle was made that was never seen before anywhere else, and that was the Higgs boson. And uh, so it has a mass about 140 times the mass of the proton. And but that was there was plenty of energy to make that because the protons, which is what the beams being collided at the LHC are made out of. So you have collisions of proton on proton. But each proton has been accelerated to such a high energy that compared to its uh, rest mass, it's about 7,000 more than that times the, the mass of the proton. So that energy is available. In principle, you could make like 14,000 protons out of that, but that, that doesn't happen. But you can make elementary particles that weigh a thousand times the mass of the proton if they're there. Now, the ones that are made in abundance is a lot of very heavy particles, some of which we've seen before. For example, the heaviest elementary particle we know is the top quark. And the top quark weighs um, 180 times the mass of the proton. And you make millions of them. The Higgs boson is harder to produce. It's um, lighter than the top quark, but it's uh, quite a bit har harder to uh, make. So you don't make as many of them. In fact, the way you make the Higgs boson is actually by making virtual top quark and anti-top quark pair that then fuses into the Higgs. And this is a very strange way to make it, but the Higgs boson it likes to talk to people, to, to people, to particles that weigh a lot. But the proton is made out of particles that don't weigh very much. And uh, so what actually happens to produce most of the Higgs bosons is that the particles we call gluons, they're called gluons because they glue quarks together inside the proton. And the proton itself contains these gluons as particles. One gluon from each proton comes together and they meet. And for an instant, they make a top quark and an anti-top quark, but not a real one, a sort of virtual one. In quantum mechanics, we have these virtual pairs all the time. And then the top and anti-top, because they're so heavy, they talk to the Higgs boson very efficiently. So this is how most of the Higgs bosons are made at the Large Hadron Collider through this kind of a process called gluon fusion. Gluon fusion. So, so I want to dig a little deeper into sort of the, the fundamental aspects of this. So if I understand this correctly, Lance, so you have, is it two up quarks and one down quark inside a proton? Yeah, that's what we call the valence quarks. The valence. And so they sort of carry the quantum numbers of the proton. For example, if you add up the electric charge of the quarks, that's two, the up quarks have been determined to have charged two thirds of that of the proton and the down quarks minus one third. So you can add up 
two times two thirds for the two up quarks and then subtract off a third for the down quark and you get one, which is the right answer. That's an example of what we call uh, quarks that are valence, that they, they carry the uh, quantum numbers of the proton. But then there are also these virtual gluons or, or gluons and, and uh, quark antiquarks fluctuating around. And those can also participate in these collisions that I was talking about. Yeah, so yeah, so I don't know if I understand this correctly. So there is sort of a sea of virtual quarks inside the proton. In, in addition to the valence quarks, that sort of gives it a, a positive one charge. Right. And, and then you have gluons that sort of bind them together. So it's sort of a complex thing inside the proton. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's an incredible thing. Yeah, Richard Feynman once described proton-proton collisions as trying to collide a pair of Swiss watches together to figure out how they worked. <laughs> but sometimes you, you do what you can. It's possible to accelerate protons to much higher energies than simpler particles at the moment. We have simpler particles, the simplest stable particle is the electron. And uh, we, we can make electron accelerators, but it's hard to store them and bend them in a circle at very high energies because the electron is so light, it tends to radiate um, electromagnetic radiation, not gravitational radiation, but electromagnetic radiation and uh, it takes up too much power. So the same machine, uh, the same ring where the Large Hadron Collider is now, previously it held the highest energy electron-positron collider. But that energy was much, much smaller than the Large Hadron Collider has. It was only a few hundred proton masses instead of 14,000. And that's because of this problem with the electrons radiating when you try to store them in a circle. People would like to build a linear collider with electrons and positrons. Yeah, so protons, uh, unfortunately, is going to be uh, the thing that we're going to smash for a while uh, for a variety of reasons. See, you, you need the electric charge to accelerate them, right? You cannot take a neutron. Yeah, we don't know how to accelerate neutral particles very effectively, like a neutron. Also, a neutron is no simpler than a proton, so it wouldn't really help. So the uh, particles that people have discussed uh, accelerating, I mean, the only ones that have really been done so far are electrons and protons. You can imagine accelerating muons, You, and muons have been stored in storage rings at low energies. But they decay. Uh, they're, when they're sitting at rest, they only last about a microsecond. So you have to act fast with muons. <laughs> <laughs> so so when, when the protons come apart, you have, as you said, uh, virtual quarks in it. You have gluons in it. So things sort of break apart. Um, so we found the Higgs boson in the let's say experiment you said it's 150 times the, the mass of a proton? Yeah, about, it's. we usually use this uh, unit called a giga electron volt, and the proton is a little less than that. And in that unit, it's 125 uh, of these giga electron volts, or GeV. So, so I don't understand this at all, Lance, but 
So my understanding is that Higgs boson essentially is sort of the mediator of gravity. Oh, sorry, sorry, mediator of mass. That's right. Not yet. Yeah, not gravity. It doesn't directly have anything to do with the gravitational force. But we have a mass which is an inertial mass and in how things accelerate without having to talk about gravity. And the Higgs boson is understood. There's a framework, the particle physics standard model, in which the Higgs boson, first of all, I should say that every in quantum mechanics, anytime you have a particle, there's also a field. Well, I should say in quantum field theory. So like in electromagnetism, the particles of electromagnetism are the photons, and the field is the electromagnetic field. In the case of LIGO, it is producing gravitational waves, but those waves are the classical cousins of what we particle physicists would call the graviton. But also, we think that the Higgs boson, the particle, is associated with something called the Higgs field. And furthermore, this Higgs field, we think that it has a sort of non-zero value everywhere in space-time. And this, uh, this crazy field talks to particles and endows them with mass. So that particles that otherwise would have been massless feel this field and uh, they get mass this way. And, and we can make predictions based on that for the relation between the masses of the forces, that, uh, the carriers of the weak force, the, which we call the W bosons and the Z. And, and there's some successful predictions from that. So, so how does the, the Higgs boson mass mediation interact with the graviton's gravity, uh, I mean, gravity mediation? What, what's the connection there? Well, we, I, I would say that the Higgs boson gives particles mass. And gravity interacts, it feels anything with mass. But more than that, it feels anything with energy. So if you accelerate a particle to make it very relativistic, uh, even if its rest mass is very small, the uh, gravitational force will see that energy and momentum. So it sees the energy even if the particle mass is negligible. But most of the time, we see particles that aren't moving very fast. And then most of their energy is their mass times the speed of light squared through E equals mc squared. So most of the time we see gravity, you know, responding to where mass is or where matter is. So, so, so graviton is sort of E plus mc squared. It's looking at the total content of energy. Yeah, it's looking at E, the total E. So oftentimes you think of mc squared as the rest mass and then the kinetic energy which people at low energies is the goes like the velocity squared, the graviton would couple to all of that. When we talk relativistically, we call something E, which is the total energy. It includes mc squared, and it also includes contributions from the velocity. We have no evidence for graviton yet, right, as a particle? That's right. We only see gravitational waves in a regime where they are very classical. But uh, most theorists think that, yeah, they're, they're really just a collection of particles like in any other quantum mechanical description. 
But to tell you the truth, we don't have, you know, any strong experimental evidence that gravity plays with quantum mechanics. We all just kind of believe it because we don't know any other way to make something that is quantum mechanically consistent unless all waves or fields are also can be interpreted as collections of particles. Yeah, uh, without knowing anything about it, it appears as two directions. Uh, you can take everything that we know quantum mechanically and try to extrapolate that to gravity, or you can take gravity and try to interpolate into everything else. The latter direction appears impossible. Yeah. So it looks like there's only one direction. Quantum mechanics has proven to be a very difficult framework to modify. And um, people say that gravity is inconsistent with quantum mechanics often, but that's not really true. <laughs> what, what is true is that if you try to assemble a theory of gravity and quantum mechanics, it, it looks like it's not going to really predict anything new. It becomes non-predictive. And what that means is that you try to calculate quantum corrections to processes involving gravity, and you encounter divergences uh, that you have to make sense of. Now, to tell you the truth, even in electromagnetism, when you try to treat it fully relativistically and, and quantum mechanically, you encounter divergences. But these were encountered in like 1947, 48, and uh, people understood how to deal with them and they understand the framework even better now. It's a procedure called renormalization, where you have to redefine what you mean as the charges and how big the fields are. But after you do that, you get completely finite predictions out. And so people can calculate things like the anomalous magnetic moment of the electron to like parts per billion accuracy. And it agrees with the experiment. So. So this procedure that's part of it is called renormalization, and it's extremely successful. The problem with gravity is that the divergences can't be renormalized away. So we call that theory non-renormalizable. So it looks like you have to introduce a new parameter every time you go to higher accuracy. And because of all these new parameters, you don't get uh, further predictions out. So. Uh, that's sort of the general feeling about what we call quantum gravity um, when we base it just on particles and fields. Now, there's another area which I worked on in my youth called string theory. Yeah. And string theory uh, avoids these divergences. It has a natural way to make everything finite. And uh, so conceptually, it's a very, very elegant framework for describing quantum mechanics and gravity. And, and the graviton comes out sort of automatically in the string theory. Yeah, so the very little I know about string theory, um, Lance, so mathematically elegant, but we cannot really prove anything <laughs> yet, at least, right? So yeah, the, uh, uh, the most likely uh, scale at which you would start to see uh, particles not being particles, but being little loops of string would be at this scale we call the Planck scale. And that's also the scale where quantum gravity 
would become strong instead of being very, very weak, like we think it is at accessible accelerator energies. So that scale is some 10 to the 16, 16 orders of magnitude beyond the LHC. So we can't reach that scale directly. So if we want to try to test string theory, it will have to be through indirect tests, possibly through uh, how it makes predictions about the very early universe, things like inflation, whether there are B modes uh, that many people are looking for. But it's not completely clear if those tests are, how, how conclusive they are. You could also try to predict some of the properties of the standard model of particle physics. It has 17 or 18 parameters in it, and we don't understand where they come from. Maybe the right theory of everything would predict them all, but so far it's been a challenge. Do you think, um, so I mean, we have a big problem in the standard model itself. I mean, we're still struggling with dark energy and dark matter, yeah. which is 95% of the universe. Um, do, do you think um, the string theory direction could resolve some of those issues? Um, possibly. I, you know, I kind of think, well, I think that dark matter is a more accessible problem than, well, I'll tell you, I think dark energy may just be what Einstein thought his greatest mistake was, come back to haunt him, which is a, a con cosmological constant or a constant vacuum energy. If it's just one parameter like that, it's going to be very hard to prove that you have the right theory of it because uh, it's just predicting one thing. Whereas dark matter, there is a lot more uh, phenomena associated with it. It should be affecting many properties cosmologically, and we have a chance to determine the particle nature of it if it is a particle. But we also have a lot of parameter space to explore, so it's, it's a difficult quest. Yeah, I mean, we're going a little bit away from your paper, but um, sure. so so I've seen some data, not data, but I've seen some hypotheses. There's a gravity is an effect on our universe by an alternative or adjacent universe. So that is why it is really weak. Um, what what is your what is your perspective on that? Well, I'm not certain. I know. Uh, what you're referring to. So let me make a guess, which is that if, so actually in string theory, it's a natural concept context for a concept which is called extra dimensions. And uh, the idea is that we have three infinite spatial dimensions. But it's also possible to have a dimension that curls up on itself like a circle. And so there could be a fourth spatial dimension or more, which are curled up into little circles. And then we have to ask, how big are those circles? So there's a characteristic length, the Planck length, which is related to this Planck mass I mentioned before. And the simplest idea uh, for how string theory works. First of all, string theory would sort of prefer there to be nine spatial dimensions and not three. So we have to get rid of six of them. So we curl them up into six little circles. And uh, the 
prevailing wisdom was that those circles were about at the Planck length. But suppose they, maybe one of them was much bigger. Then in some sense, gravity would sort of see that dimension and spread out more through that dimension and get weaker compared to other forces. So I think this idea of curling up dimensions and making them much bigger than this uh, naive Planck scale, but still sub-millimeter, still not that big, <laughs> that, that has been uh, explored to try to explain uh, the weakness of gravity and maybe also related to it, the weak interactions. Right, so, so I want to go back to LIGO now. So we, we detected this, uh, I guess, two black holes merging, and we have sort of a characteristic wave pattern coming out of it as they revolve around each other and ultimately merge and then go into uh, a, a different mode. So, um, I mean, I don't know the engineering aspects of LIGO that deeply, but this this should be happening quite often, right, in the universe? Well, LIGO is detected on the order of dozens, maybe pushing 100 of these. The very interesting thing is that the signal does not fall off very uh, fast with distance. It's a, it's a wave, and uh, it only falls off at 1 over uh, r, 1 over the uh, radius. Whereas like the flux from a star falls off like one over R squared. So even though it's not very easy to detect these, once you've detected them uh, at some level, if you can get your uh, noise down by a factor of three, then the volume of the universe that opens up to you uh, goes like three cubed, like 27 times bigger. So you can actually see events extremely far away once you can start to see events at all. Yeah, so uh, you talk about scattering amplitudes here. Um, I don't, I, I have no clue about them, uh, Lance, but um, so so we have this quantum chromodynamics that, that sort of dominates LHC. Uh, so, so can you put this in sort of simple ways? So, what do you mean by amplitude here? Yeah, so uh, the rules of quantum mechanics are that everything is probabilities. They're, at the microscopic level, you can't say that anything happens in a deterministic way. Instead, there are probabilities. And the way you uh, compute the probabilities is by trying to solve like Schrodinger's equation, a wave equation, and those solutions are typically complex numbers. And then you square them to get the probability. And we call that probability the cross-section, but it's just a probability for a certain scattering to happen. And it's a real number, and it's obtained by squaring a complex number. And those complex numbers that underlie the probability, those are called amplitudes. So um, the yeah. complex numbers underlying the probability. So, so, so we can compute a probability of something happening, but underlying that probability is a complex number. Yeah. So, and like in the there's a famous double slit 
a diffraction okay. experiment, right? Where you send light through two slits and you see a series of peaks and troughs. Yeah. And the intensities there, they're all positive numbers. But if you want to compute them, you have to work out a uh, complex amplitude for the uh, electromagnetic field and then square it. So that, that's an analog of what we do when we compute these scattering amplitudes. It's like, where, where do the photons go in the double slit experiment? Yeah, I mean, what's really fascinating for me, which I'm understanding a lot about this, Lance, is that you could take a black hole scattering and then sort of equate that to so the, the sort of LHC experiment. Yeah, so this um, is where the real uh, mystery comes is that there's a secret relation between the interactions of the gravitational field that is involved in uh, the black holes spiraling in. Those gravitational interactions are secretly very similar to the interactions of these gluons that hold the protons together. And um, the equality is most easily seen when you look at the sort of uh, simplest kind of nonlinear thing that happens. And the simplest nonlinear thing that happens, we call it a three-point scattering amplitude. So it's like one gluon in and two gluons out, or one graviton in and two gravitons out. And when we look at the formulas for those two cases, the graviton case is literally the square up to some constant of the gluon case. So we say we have a slogan, which is gravity is the square of gauge theory, or gravity is the square of Yang-Mills theory. Yang and Mills were the uh, pioneers who first wrote down the field equations for the gauge theory that uh, includes quantum chromodynamics. Actually, the weak interactions are described as well by a not what we call a non-abelian gauge theory. So in some sense, all of the, the forces of the standard model, unless you count the Higgs as a force too, all of those forces are described by these uh, gauge theories. And so it's very interesting that in some sense, gravity looks like the square of them. When we, when we look at the spin being carried by these particles, the gauge particles carry a spin of one times Planck's constant, whereas the gravitons carry a spin of two times Planck's constant. So this squaring is literally one plus one equals two. So when you say it that way, maybe it makes, uh, <laughs> it's just simple addition. But, but then the consequences are much richer when you go from this very simple three-point case, three one in and two out, to more complicated cases. But you can literally use these techniques to understand the higher order nonlinearities in the scattering of black holes. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I can hear God chuckle, Lance. Uh, <laughs> she's saying these guys are getting to it now. <laughs> <laughs> these things are all connected together. Um, so is this is this sort of the direction that you think um, we should be really? So black holes really is a nice experimental factory um, where we could test or, or actually virtually test 
a uh, lot of things. Um, we have the LHC where we can smash protons together. Uh, do you think this is where we are heading? We are, we are trying to, the grand unification theories that have been proposed from the 1970s have eluded us so far. Do you think we are getting closer in that respect? Yeah, I mean, the on the going back to the gravity side and, and LIGO, this gives us an arena where we can see very strong gravitational fields. Most of the tests of relativity that have been done around the solar system are in very weak fields. And so far, they're all consistent, uh, but the fields are very, very weak compared to what you have with these black hole mergers. So one hope is that we see something strikingly different or, or a little different. And uh, this idea of using this relation to get more precise predictions uh, for the gravitational waveforms, perhaps at some point there will be some deviation that shows up where the waveform doesn't look like the predictions. We don't know. It's still a ways off. It might, might have to wait for uh, Lisa to explore these um, other types of coalescences too, or for more advanced uh, versions of ground-based observatories. On the, on the collider side, we still have a big puzzle, which we didn't really talk about yet, which has to do with uh, not just dark matter and dark energy, but there's another puzzle that particle physicists have, which is why the weak scale is the scale that it's at. It just, uh, when you consider quantum corrections, quantum mechanics and the Higgs boson, it tends to change the weak scale and make it at a higher energy than we observe it at. This is just a thought experiment, but there's a fine tuning problem that we have. And uh, many people expected new newer particles to be seen beyond the Higgs, which was predicted in 1964, um, to appear at the Large Hadron Collider, and they haven't yet. So we're wondering why there aren't any particles there. So the LHC is going to keep colliding particles for another, I don't know, 15 years, and it's going to collect a lot more data as a result of upgrades. So there are still things to watch for there uh, in that might guide us towards the next layer of unification. Do you think you're on the right path, though, Lance? I mean, I sometimes feel, you know, we are playing some sort of Russian doll game. Um, maybe find something and then you open that up, you find something that's <laughs> in there. Uh, are we getting closer to some fundamental understanding? Uh, so, the, I mean, I don't know much about this. The problem with experiments is that we tend to find things we look for um, in experiments. I mean, that's a grand statement. You can correct me if you believe otherwise. <laughs> yeah, it's not always true. Sometimes you find things that you weren't looking for. I mean, uh, take, for example, dark energy. That was an observation of supernovas. And uh, they were trying to measure the deceleration of the universe, which is what would always happen if you had only energy of matter and radiation in it. So they were, it was a complete surprise that the sign was wrong. Not only did they not measure deceleration, they measured acceleration instead. And uh, so, so that was completely different. 
And I think actually there are many examples of discoveries that are made because of an increase in, in sensitivity of detectors. If you can build an accelerator that gives you 10 times the collision at 10 times the energy, usually quite often you discover something new and it's not always what was predicted. Yeah, I mean, they say universe has no obligation to explain how it works to us. But, but, but do you think there is something to the idea that a simpler, uh, a simpler idea is always better? You know, it, it seems to me without knowing a lot about it, we are going down a path of complexity. We're finding more particles, we're finding more fields, but we are not really going further in terms of fundamental understanding. Is there anything to that? Well, most of the particles we found recently were ones that were predicted uh, 40 to 50 years ago. So those were all part of a theory that was built up in the in the 70s, by the 70s. And uh, so they're not adding any more complexity. They're actually filling in the pieces of the puzzle. Now, if you saw something new that went beyond the puzzle, you might say you were just adding particles and it's and it looks worse. But I think most particle physicists would say these new particles are a clue towards an eventual unification. There are other ways we might see unification in our lifetimes which could be the discovery of proton decay. That was actually the first uh, suggestion from what were called grand unified theories when they were developed in the 1970s. They aim to put the strong interactions, QCD, into the same framework as the electroweak interactions, electromagnetism and the, the weak interactions we briefly touched on. Those grand unified theories always predict proton decay. The early versions of them predicted it to happen quite quickly, and they were soon ruled out because experimentalists, once they realized there was a live possibility of protons decaying, started putting a lot of protons in the form of water into big mines, and they quickly determined that the proton wasn't decaying very fast. And then, uh, more modern versions of the theories predicted slower proton decay. And uh, so maybe we have an opportunity to see something like that happening. There's a, there has been a detector in Japan called Super Kamiokande, which has the best limits on proton decay. And it's going to be upgraded to Hyper Kamiokande, which will uh, observe more protons more quickly than before. So maybe we'll see something there. What's your intuition? You think proton decay is, is just something that we can detect? in? in I think at some level protons will decay. Whether it will really happen uh, in a rate that hyper-K, hyper-Kamiokande can see, it's hard to say. Because it's a very strong function of the mass of the responsible particles. It goes like the fourth power of the mass. So you make them twice as heavy and the rate becomes 16 times slower. And uh, if it was like just beyond detection, then 16 times slower may be beyond hyper-K or it will take a while. <laughs>
So, so nobody has to worry, at least for now, that their protons are going to decay into something. <laughs> Even uh, if one decays in hyper-K, that is so many human bodies that the odds that one of yours decays is not a problem. And I, I don't even think uh, <laughs> you get a little bit of radiation when one decays, but it's not really there very much in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> so, so, so I want to uh, conclude on um, your intuition on, again, grad unification, because you're sort of looking at LHC and the, and the LIGO data, and you're saying in very big scales we get data, in very small scales we get data. They seem to sort of have common characteristics that we can study. Um, so, so do you think there is a grand unification underlying principle that we haven't yet found, or is it just a pipe dream? Well, I worked in string theory for a while, and I still think it's a very nice conceptual framework. And it is one that removes these infinities that I was mentioning in quantum gravity. And it very naturally has in it both gravitons and the particles that make up gauge theories, gluons and things like that. So I think it's a very great all-encompassing framework. The task is to go beyond that and make more concrete predictions and uh, understand the limitations of the predictions too. And, and uh, at the moment, it seems very difficult to do that. There seem to be huge numbers of ways of going from sort of 10-dimensional string theory down to the four dimensions we observe. Hundreds and thousands of, of uh, different possibilities. Well, actually 10 to the few hundred thousand is the last number I heard. And with that many possibilities, uh, we may need other clues to know which is the right way for string theory to possibly be relevant to the real world. So, so I have an education question for you. You're at Stanford. Um, I often wondered, you know, young students coming into physics, is there any value in teaching them Newtonian mechanics <laughs> anymore? I mean, uh, shouldn't they be going to string theory on day one? I mean, or, or whatever it is. I mean, uh, we can teach computers Newtonian mechanics really efficiently. I mean, we don't need humans doing Newtonian mechanics anymore. So is there something with education that we need to also change? Well, you can still, I mean, a lot of the things in the subatomic world, you need to go beyond the classical mechanics of Newtonian mechanics. But uh, the classical picture is often a very useful uh, predecessor to understanding what what you want to do in quantum mechanics. For example, you start by doing classical mechanics with uh, Newton's uh, forces and so on. But there's also another approach to it, which is variational, which is you find a function and you minimize it. And when you minimize it, it tells you where all the particles go in Newtonian mechanics. And that's called the action or sometimes the Lagrangian. And that becomes a very useful way to think about quantum mechanics, which uh, Feynman first developed, which was a sum over many paths. Instead of just finding the one with the least action, you, find, you take all the paths 
And, and so this insight from classical mechanics is a great way to understand the more complicated world of quantum mechanics. So th there are lots of things you can uh, learn about it, even if the goal of just numerically predicting where things go can be done by a machine. Would you change anything in the in sort of the status quo educational content that, you know, that could push us forward faster? Yeah, that's a great question. I mostly teach short courses in, in very, uh, uh, you know, specialized uh, areas. I really think that for the more general approach, I think that the ability to do, to solve problems numerically and also symbolically should be integrated into curricula sooner. There are some very nice uh, packages out there for doing symbolic mathematics. Um, Many of my colleagues use Mathematica. I use Maple. I, I don't know, but I think that both either of those could be integrated more in into uh, undergraduate physics curriculum, and uh, people could see and play around with things that a way they, you know, don't do it when they're just solving things by hand. Of course, you also want them to learn how to do problems themselves too, but. But this could give them more intuition about how things work. And in a world of cheap computing and cheap memory, they yeah. could do very, very interesting things right from day one if they want. Yeah, to. yeah. We we uh, push our uh, clusters of computers to the limit of their random access memory to do things in uh, Maple quite often. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Lance. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Sure thing. Thanks, Gil, for having me on. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.